Monday, May 6th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool 1, Jason Moser from Motley Fool Hidden Gems, Chief Investment Officer Andy Cross. Happy Monday, guys. Hey, hey. gentlemen. Good weekend? It's had a mint julep. Fantastic. Did you? I did. Well, you know, Kentucky. Celebrating the Derby. Kentucky Derby. That is the time yeah. to have a mint julep. It was. I did two things. I listened or read uh, a lot of the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting coverage yep. from Fool, from the guys at uh, Fool.com. It was awesome. And I cleaned my garage. Wow. Yeah, one, one of those sounds, sounds a lot better yeah, than the other one. Exactly. Um, the first one better <laughs> than the second one. Although my wife may disagree. I think the last time I cleaned the garage was about three and a half years ago when we moved up here from Georgia. Uh, it, <laughs> it is not It is not a, an endeavor that you should take lately. It no. takes uh, – takes, yeah. uh, We will talk about the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. We'll also uh, talk about uh, Barnes & Noble's uh, latest attempt at relevancy. Uh, and uh, Disney, with, with the results over the weekend from Iron Man, just – just unbelievable. Uh, but let's start with Berkshire Hathaway. Um, shares hitting a new all-time high this morning in the wake of last weekend's annual meeting. Uh, among the um, news, and, and you know, for the six people who watched the video, I am using air quotes <laughs> on that. Um, it, it, there's still no word mm. on a successor to Warren Buffett, although he did say that he and the board of directors know who it will be. Um, but, you know, it, Andy, this is one of those things where – Buffett is not uh, not known for making headlines coming yeah. out of the annual meeting, so no real surprise there. But uh, but continues to be very bullish on stocks, even in the wake of the run that the market has had over the last year or so, particularly in 2013 so far. Saying, "Hey, stocks are still reasonably priced." Uh, I guess not a surprise. It's not, and and I, he should be bullish. I mean, I think many of us are bullish. We talked about this on, on on Friday. The economic news is fairly good. Investors are seeing good news, and the the alternatives for your investments are just minimal. I mean, Buffett talked to Warren Buffett talked about this at the annual meeting, talking about the just the 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 paucity of kind of returns you will get from bonds. Yeah. and he actually said, just, "I'm sorry." For people who invest in fixed equity, or yeah. fixed income securities right now, because the returns are just going to be, the prices are uh, had moved up and and the yields are so low that when you look at that compared to your equity investments, especially here in America, where companies are really doing some great things to grow their business. Um, the, the, the stocks are the way to go. I like that he he prefaced uh, on one occasion when he was talking about bonds. He he felt the need to sort of preface his comments by talking about Bill Gross, you know, the the bond king, <laughs> and not, saying, yeah. "I like I like Bill Gross," but yeah. you know, and then just went on to talk about how bonds are a terrible yeah. investment. I mean, the, the one thing about to, to your point earlier, Chris, you you don't really learn a lot new stuff from the annual meeting. We didn't have any big reveals. I mean, he yep. kind of reiterates a lot of practices that, that Warren and his part, his, uh, his vice chairman at Berkshire Hathaway, Charlie Munger, have talked about for many, many years. Um, so you don't really learn a whole lot of new stuff, but it is still very entertaining and that reassurance that investing in that style that he has articulated for so many years and that we believe here at The Motley Fool is the way to go. And Jason, as we were talking about this morning, one of those lessons he reinforced was just the whole notion of having a watch list and being ready, being ready to buy stocks. Because while rightfully so, we look at things like the acquisition of Heinz, sort of the big, splashy elephant gun acquisitions, the fact of the matter is that this is a guy who most of the time is just buying in steady increments. Yeah, and I mean, I think uh, this meeting to me every year, it's kind of like the, the more things change, the more they stay the same. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, you know, to me, 
I went to the meeting last year. I loved it. Had a great time. And there wasn't anything really new that was revealed this year, obviously. Um, but, but you do see that he, he always has sort of that optimistic take on the market. And, and the, the quote that I really liked hearing this year was just in regard to people asking sort of about concerns, panic in the market and whatnot. And he said Berkshire's the 800 number when there's really mm-hmm. panic in the market. You know, when there will come a day when the Dow is falling a 1,000 points in a couple of days or whatever, and that it, when that time hits, the tide's going to go out. You're going to see a lot of naked people that have been swimming. Yeah. And those are the people that are going to be calling Berkshire Hathaway. So to your point about a watch list, not only does he keep a watch list, but he keeps all the capital that he needs to really fulfill that watch list should things come available. And at the end of quarter one of this year, the, the company had about $50 billion in cash on the balance. Which I think is a big deal because he's not buying bonds, he's not buying Apple bonds, he's not buying other bonds. You know that he's focused on stocks, he's focused on companies uh, to, to bring under that Berkshire Hathaway umbrella, and that's just that's always the way it is. It's like it's like deliberate practice with this guy. Going to the annual meeting every year is just deliberate practice and sort of reemphasizing uh, what makes what makes him and what makes Charlie Munger and what makes Berkshire Hathaway so special. And Andy, to that point, he reiterated on CNBC this morning that whole notion of the market dropping, saying those are the milestones that interest him a lot more. Just as you know, it's not when the Dow hits a new high or crosses some you know. Uh, some point yeah. barrier with a lot of zeros at the end. He loves to see it drop. Well, he talks about if you're a long-term buyer of hamburgers, you love when the hamburger <laughs> prices go on sale because you yeah. buy a lot of hamburgers. And st- Warren's the same way, and many of us are, th- are that way too. When stocks get cheap, if you are really a buyer of businesses, Chris, and you're focused on looking out the next three, five, ten years, as he is with things like BNSF and, and Heinz, certainly, you love it when prices get cheap because you can buy a lot more stock. Uh, Andy mentioned the uh, content on fool.com. Really encourage people to check that out if they're looking to read more. Right now, uh, uh, on the main page of fool.com, the, the banner story is Matt Koppenheffer, uh, one of our banking analysts, uh, has the five key takeaways from Woodstock for capitalists, which yep. is, of course, how the annual meeting is referred to. Uh, one final word about Matt Koppenheffer. There was the 5K race, the first ever yeah. Berkshire Hathaway 5K race this weekend. Uh, over 1,600 people ran in it. Uh, kudos to – we talk about the investing acumen of Todd Combs and Ted Weschler. Those guys are fast. Yep. Uh, Todd Combs finished the 5K race in 21 minutes, 57 seconds. He was 94th overall. Ted Weschler ran it in 22.54. He was 142nd overall. But our man Matt Koppenheffer. 17 minutes, 57 seconds. Cop he finished 16. 16th overall. That's phenomenal. Cop the fool. Cop the Not fool. Not surprising, yeah. but just I'm just waiting for phenomenal. the uh, Diet Coke and Cherry Coke comp- drinking competition between Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger that they're going to have sometime down the road. I could jump in on that one. Yeah. I, I bet that, you could give him a run for their money. Yeah. Cop yeah. and Heifer can outrun any of us, but I will challenge yeah. him on Dilly Bars any day. <laughs> uh, Barnes & Noble is adding Google Play to the Nook tablets um, uh, Google Play, sort of the, the one-stop shop for Google apps and software services. This kind of seems like a no-brainer move by Barnes & Noble. Why did it take this long? Well, I, you know, in all honesty, or it's is not it necessarily... Not a, or is it not a it's, it's not necessarily. I tell you, what I think is I think this is bigger news for people who already own Nooks, but I don't think it's really any compelling news that's going to get someone out there to go buy a Nook. 
Um, it certainly facilitates the process if you are a Nook user. It gives you some more options as far as your Nook goes. I mean, Nook essentially is the same thing as any of these other tablets. It's just Barnes & Noble stripped down their version of Android and sort of tacked on a couple of things uh, to make to make their bookstore accessible. But I did find out something interesting with this because in regard to, to Google Play's you know, apps and, and entertainment that you can buy through there. Barnes and Noble doesn't get a scrape off that. That money just goes straight to Google. So really, this is, I think, Barnes and New- Barnes and Noble's attempt to try to convince people to get out there and buy a Nook device so that they can sell more of their digital content. Because we know ultimately that the device for them is essentially a money loser. The only way they can really make up for it is by selling the content on the device, which they've done a decent job of. But at the end of the day, when you look at something out there like an Amazon Kindle or even an Apple iPad, Barnes & Noble is just too late to this game to begin with. And, and truthfully, with, with Google, I've never used a Google tablet like the, the Nexus tablets. Um, I, I think this – I don't know that I necessarily really like this for Google either because it, as time goes on, that, that, Android, that Android operating system just kind of gets diluted because it's, it's used on virtually every device that's not an iOS device. They have some form of Android that's been stripped down and catered in, in, you know, to, the, to, the, to the specs of the company that, that is using it. And this is another example of that with Barnes & Noble. So I understand why they did it. Um, I don't think it's anything that really uh, puts a plug in the leak. I think that Barnes & Noble is still in real trouble with the Nook franchise. I mean, they just not too terribly long ago had the agreement with Microsoft as well to sort of push that college and digital books content stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I just don't see this as ultimately a game changer. If anything, I think you look at something like an Amazon, and it really just strengthens their position because of the ecosystem they built around those Kindles. You know, it's funny, it got me at least thinking and considering about Barnes & Noble, which I hadn't thought about in probably two years. you know, So <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow, okay, this looks pretty cool. The reviews for the Nook are actually really good. Yeah, so no. from a hardware perspective, it, at least this now that the fact, the fact that they're tied into Google Play, at least got me interested. Yeah. I don't own a tablet, and not that I would go out and buy a Nook, but at least it kind of got me interested that, hey, this is kind of neat. To Jason's point about the, kind of the impact for Google, it is yet one more example of, of how we see Google getting just putting little bets kind of all over the place they get a lot of talk about their google glass but this example of like hey we're just going to put our you know our system google play android whatever it may be in so many so many different places that the brand of google just hopefully strengthens over time if it if it dilutes the brand trouble if it strengthens it good for google this seems like the sort of thing where we're going to know pretty quickly to what extent this helps Barnes & Noble, because uh, William Lynch, the CEO, came out and said very specifically, look, we had softer sales during the holiday season of the Nook tablet than we thought we were going to have. And according to our research and surveys, the number one reason people weren't buying was the lack of breadth when it came yeah. to apps and software and that sort of thing. This would seem like a pretty cut-and-dry way of... Uh, making up for that deficit and uh, my hunch is next time they report quarterly earnings or you know maybe maybe in the fall when they report we're going to know pretty quickly aren't we i think you'll probably get a pretty good sense of it but again i mean i i think that it's 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 a really tall order to put this out there and then try to convince someone who's already totally you know ingrained in their in their Apple ecosystem or their their Amazon ecosystem to pick up and switch over and buy a Nook because now you can get Google stuff. I mean, it, it might prompt some sales uh, going forward, but I don't know that it's going to be something that really compels anyone to make a switch. And, and you also have to face the fact that you're going up against – I mean, anytime you look at going up against someone like Jeff Bezos – 
and, and really, it seems like it's going to be in any in any line of work at this point. Just forget tablets. I mean, it's books, it's entertainment, it's virtually anything. But you know that he is just going to spend you under the table. And so that is a tall order to begin with. Uh, I just think they're a little bit too late to this game, and I think that ultimately it doesn't change the long-term story for Barnes & Noble, which uh, is is not a pretty one. I will say that was the argument against Netflix, and Netflix has really sustained its, its – I mean, a year and a half ago, two years ago, we were talking yep. about how Amazon is just going to – has a bigger balance sheet and will just spend Netflix under the table. hasn't necessarily worked out that way. So, yeah. you know, I think I look at this, and it is interesting to think about um, – the switching costs, uh, how, how really locked in are we to our ecosystem? I mean, this, the Nook now, this will offer Gmail tied to, so you can get Gmail tied to Nook. It won't replace Nook's email system, whatever that may be, but at least yeah. they, if you're a Gmail user, if you're a heavy Google Play user, does this at least maybe get you interested in thinking about, hey, the Nook may be the way to go? Or would you buy a Nook over a Nexus? I mean, I don't know. Well, I that's the other interesting thing. Like Google's, to your point about diluting the brand, it's kind of like, well, does Google even care whether yeah. you like? Netflix well, I mean, this, or, there's no or, question. You can see who holds the cards in this relationship because, I mean, Barnes and Noble doesn't get anything from a purchase <laughs> right. made from a Google Play Store. It all goes straight to Google. So again, I think this was Barnes and Noble really trying to reach for a lifeline and keeping that franchise alive. Google could take it or leave it. It doesn't really matter to them. It's right. it's more or less just incremental income for them at this point. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing in the yeah. power of Google, right there. Absolutely. Uh, reportedly, uh, Barnes & Noble had been considering a deal like this for a couple of years, which then got me thinking back a couple of years and potential deals with Google. Do you suppose a week goes by in the offices of Groupon that someone doesn't bring up the fact that Google once offered them a check <laughs> for, for $6 billion? Don't you think today. that that – just every week someone must just like, yeah, well, we've taken the check from Google. Uh, there are 13 movies – that are in the billionaire club. Uh, this is, of course, movies that have grossed a billion dollars or more. Uh, it appears that one more is very certainly on the way. Iron Man 3 took in $175 million in the U.S. this weekend. It's the second highest opening ever here in the United States. Worldwide gross is now $680 million. Wow. Uh, just <laughs> eye-popping numbers, Jason. And yet, uh, as as you hinted at on the radio show last week, when you look at the overall percentage of revenue that studios make up for Disney, this is one of those things where let's not get too excited here. If you're a Disney shareholder, don't, it's, it's nice. It's good news. It's certainly better than a year ago when John Carter was losing $200 million, but, <laughs> but, but this is, uh, it's, it's good, but it's not going to significantly move the needle, at least in terms of, what the studios do in and of themselves. Right. Well, I mean, that's, it, it's good. You know, obviously applaud Disney for, for putting out a great hit there. But yeah, I mean, it's the studio segments about 12% of overall operating income or, um, actually it might even be a little bit less than, I'm sorry, it's yeah, 7%, 7% of operating income, but they run about, uh, 12% operating margins, which is a little bit lower than their overall margin picture for the company. But when you look at the, the total sales that the studio segment brings in over the course of a year, it's close to $6 billion. Uh, so with a, with a billion dollar hit on their hands here, you can see it's very significant to that bucket of their revenue. But, but again, what they do, which is just so phenomenal, is they'll, they'll take this billion dollar plus movie and then they'll monetize it so many different ways, like they've done over, over the, you know, through the years. And, and they just, that's what contributes to those other buckets of revenue that the company generates over the course of the year. And then they just stretch it out. I mean, there are more and more iterations. I mean, Iron Man 4 is almost a given at this point. Yep. And, I mean, you have to probably – your money has got to be on an Iron Man 5 too, right? I mean, 
they just do an unbelievable job with these things. And when you look at the the amount of money that they bring in just in the studio segment alone, and then you realize how much money the company brings in in total over the course of a year, you realize how talented they are and how diverse they are. And while, yes, this isn't something that's going to make or break the company, it's certainly very encouraging for that studio segment. It's also a good kickoff to the spring holiday or spring, uh, summer and summer movie series. I mean, oh, yeah. the New York Times is, this weekend, they had their summer movie, you know, special. So there is that kind of like, hey, we're kicking off with a, with a nice little bang here. It's probably more impact for a company like IMAX than it is a company for Disney, which to Jason's point, Disney is so diversified, although the beauty of their business is that they will leverage this for many, many years yeah. to come. And, uh, the fact of the matter is, is Disney has to continue to knock out hits like this, you know, from time to time. Yeah. Maybe not every year, maybe not every quarter, certainly, and they're going to have the stinkers like John Carter, and they can manage those, um, the beauty of having a big balance sheet, unlike something like DreamWorks, that, that you have a stinker in there, it's it's harder for DreamWorks to recover. Yeah, we talked about this over, uh, over the course of last week, too. I mean, it just makes you think about how... You know, Bob Iger has just done a phenomenal job. He's got he's pulled the trifecta here with with acquisitions at this point, right? Oh yeah, Pixar, I mean, Pixar, Marvel, and now Lucasfilms. But man, I mean, it just really makes you see the importance of that Marvel acquisition yep. because the the depth of that catalog, the superheroes that are available there, and they're doing this with just one that I think we all could agree wasn't necessarily even a a top tier superhero at least at the time. I mean, I think he's probably bumped Iron Man up a couple of notches in a lot of people's books. Well, to that point, you go back and look at when Iron Man was made the first time around. And now, obviously, given how huge the franchise is, they're willing to put $200 million behind this movie to produce it. Whereas when they made the first one, uh, listen to an interview that John Favreau, the, the director of the first two movies, gave recently, and he talked about how one of the very specific directions he got was about the budget. Yeah. That's part of why they got Robert Downey Jr. was because Robert Downey Jr. was not nearly the star. <laughs> <On> the <cheap. laughs> he was on the cheap. They could get him on the cheap. Yeah. And and to your point about the catalog, you look at 5,000 plus characters in the universe of Marvel Comics and I'm not saying they're going to be able to duplicate what they've done with Iron Man, but they can make, they can cherry pick some smaller, lesser known superheroes in that universe and say, sure, we'll green light $20 million for this movie because we think it's going to return twice that. They're going to be tapping that well for the rest of our lives. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Andy, you mentioned the summer blockbuster movies. You sit right next to Ron Gross, who... Uh, if anyone were to come to full headquarters and go by his desk, it's littered with Superman yep. paraphernalia. Mm-hmm. How excited is he for the Man of Steel movie coming he, out? He may actually have Superman underoos on, like, at various times during the year. I think he's just, like, I, know, I wouldn't doubt it, right? I know for a fact that he owns a pair of Superman pajamas. The The reason I know that is because uh, he showed me a photo of them. So. Nice. And, and it just was, the pajamas, not the underoos. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it, it was the, the old show. adage, there are some things you can't unsee. <laughs> and that's, you know, that is unfortunately. Yeah. And now we are cursed with that as well. Thank yeah. You. We should just plan on him not being in the office when Man of Steel comes out, right? Will He's he, not going to be here. Will he actually be in the office when uh, who knows? Uh, to be continued. Andy Cross, Jason Moser, guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. 
We'll see you tomorrow.